Well, I'm appreciative of Carl bringing forth the word last week, and um, one of the th areas I'm definitely not like Carl, I don't have a fancy pun for you, so I can't give you a holy cow or any of the other things he might have done. And if you weren't here last week, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. I'm not sure I have a clue what I'm talking about at this point. But you, some of you know what I'm talking about. That's just, I don't have that in me. I wish I did. I have to learn from the best with Carl on that one, but I'm, but I'm not there. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we approach the very Word of God? Part of our worship is hearing and speaking uh, the Word of God. So let's pray before our Father. Father, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you have given us your Word out of love for us, to form us into the image of Jesus Christ, that we'd become more and more conformed to your holiness and justice and beauty and goodness and greatness and love and truth. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and soften our hearts, that we would be teachable. Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, shaping them by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand. If you were able, I'm going to read the text upon which our teaching is based this morning. It's from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it begins in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and I'm going to read down to chapter 4 and verse 7. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary pr principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, this is the word of God, given because God loves us. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series of sermons that will take us up until Memorial Day and when the campus outreach students arrive. And what we will be looking at is the Lord's Prayer. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we studying the Lord's Prayer? Let me just kind of highlight several different, what I hope to be, fairly practical reasons why we're doing this. First of all, did you notice, have you ever noticed, has, this hasn't slipped by you, we recite, we pray the Lord's Prayer every week in our liturgy. Did you catch that? This wasn't the only morning we do that. That tends to be, now why do we do that? Because we believe that one of the things that our order of worship, that our liturgy does, is that it shapes us and forms us to increase our love for Christ, our desire for Him, our desire for the kingdom. Did you hear the call to worship? Oh God, you are my God. What did it say? Apathetically, I seek you? You know, casually, I just kind of like that. Earnestly, I seek you. David, the psalmist, has a pretty good picture of what life is like when he says, in a dry and weary land, in a barren land, where even the greatest and the best of friendships and relationships can leave me empty and aching and wanting for more. You know, what was it that St. Augustine said? Our hearts will be restless until they find their rest 
in thee. It is worship. It is the liturgy that shapes and forms our soul. We believe God is actually doing a work. It's fairly mysterious, but God is actually doing a work when we come into worship, increasing our love for him, increasing our desire for him. And so as such, as one commentator put it, describing the Lord's Prayer, said this prayer then serves as a lens through which to see Jesus himself and to discover something of what he was about. When Jesus gave his disciples this prayer, he was giving them part of his own breath, his own life, his own prayer. The prayer then is actually a distillation of Jesus' own sense of vocation, his own understanding of his Father's purposes. And so if we are to truly enter into it and make it our own, it can only be if we understand first how he set about living the kingdom himself. So in other words, when Jesus says, Luke, you have two versions of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount gives us a version, and Luke gives us a version. In Luke's version, found in Luke 11, the disciples approach him, and they ask him the question, Lord, will you teach us to pray as John's disciples? They're observing things, and they're saying, John took his disciples aside and taught them to pray. Would you do the same? Teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them this prayer. Jesus gave them the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we're learning to pray from the mouth of Jesus himself, which leads to kind of our second reason, which I think is a very practical reason to study the Lord's Prayer, and that is the central concern and priority of prayer in the Christian life. How important prayer is. Think about it this way. We just finished our Easter season, focusing on the resurrection of our Savior. And after Easter, actually it should always be this way, but especially after Easter, one of the things we do, it's appropriate to ask how do we individually, how do we as a church appropriate the resurrection power in our lives that we possess? You know, the scriptures teach us, Ephesians chapter 2, after it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised, and it's a past tense verb, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I want you to just kind of think about this for a second. In God's sight, we have already been raised from death to life. We have been raised, when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him so that we have resurrection power. It's one of the reasons Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering in order to know the power of the resurrection. So practical question, how do you in a sense possess what you possess? How do you appropriate your possessions? You've been raised with Christ. If I were to look at your life, you were to look at my life. If the watching world were to look at our lives, would they say about us, there goes those resurrection people. They just live with such power. No hint of alienation there. No hint of death there. It's just life and raised. I think it's a practical question. How do we begin to appropriate? I mean, the text says you've been raised with Christ. I, I, it's kind of like inquiring minds want to know. How do we begin to appropriate some of that? Very practical issue with that is through prayer, which kind of leads to what should our priorities in prayer be? Do we just come kind of like with a shopping list? Here are our needs. Here are my wants. Let's begin to pray. 
Or maybe we go, that sounds a little selfish. Here are the needs of others. Here are the wants of others. Is that what we do? One writer commenting on the Lord's Prayer says, it may begin to dawn dawn on us that there's not just a larger world out there, but there's a larger God out there. That's why I put as the subtext for this series that the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to life in God. Peter says that when we have received the very great and precious promises of God, we become, he says, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. The Lord's Prayer enters into not just a larger world, but a larger God that we're invited to actually share in and participate in his life. So here's what we're going to be doing between now and Memorial Day. We're going to be looking clause by clause. Today, the preface to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. And we're going to be looking at it as a framework, and we're going to look at a text of Scripture today, Galatians chapter 4. And then we're going to look each week at, a, at the different petitions. Okay, next, you kind of know what's coming next. Next week is Hallowed by, Be Thy Name. If I jump ahead to daily bread, uh, pray for me. You know I need to, you know, revert back, okay? You have the order of what we're doing. We're going to look at a text of Scripture that goes with each one. And maybe just let me give you a couple practical suggestions. Again, just trying to, we look at a main purpose in this series is how do we learn and grow in the practice of prayer? A couple suggestions, a couple thoughts as you do this. One is you could take the Lord's Prayer and make it your own personal prayer, you know, in your own personal prayer life. Take each phrase as you pray for yourself, as you pray for your family, as you go through your daily prayer list. Focus on, okay, I pray that my family understands what it means that God is their Father. Help them to understand what does it mean that he's protector and provider and shepherd and king. What does it mean that he's our father? That means we are each other's brothers and sisters. You could take a clause at a time. What does it mean to hallow his name? What does it mean to be one who hungers and thirsts, who's longing for the advent of his kingdom? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You could take that phrase and as you pray for yourself and as you pray for others. Use it as a framework. For your prayer. We often do what? Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You could still do that, but you could do that around the Lord's Prayer. Praying for one another to find forgiveness, to seek daily bread, that they would be led not into temptation, but delivered from evil. Another way, which I could say this was my own idea, but one writer suggested this, is you could take each petition of the Lord's Prayer and make it the focus of prayer for that specific day, kind of a prayer for the day. So Sunday, your focus could be on our Father who art in heaven and look at various texts around that. Monday, hallowed be your name. Tuesday, your kingdom come, and so on. So just some practical suggestions as, to, as a way This is very, I mean, these are Jesus. The disciples said, teach us to pray. This is what Jesus gave them. I don't know about you, but I think maybe we should make it a priority in our lives. It's the words of Jesus. What do you think? So this morning, let's dive into this text, the first petition, the preface to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, one of the most precious gifts. See, let's ask the question, how did God become our Father? It's not automatic. God becomes our father by his choice and by the act of adoption. 
The precious gift of adoption. So as we look at Galatians chapter 4, and I kind of give, we're going to focus on Galatians 4, 4 through 7. So if you're following kind of in the bulletin, that's where I'm going to land on. And I gave you for kind of context, the outer skirts of that reading. But let's look at this from two different perspectives. The promise of adoption and some of the characteristics of adoption. The promise and then what does it look like in our lives? First of all, the promise of adoption. I provided this quote for you by J.I. Packer. It's from his classic book, Knowing God. It's, I, I think it'd be an excellent book to read. It's a tremendous book. And it's one of my favorite quotes. I've given it to you before, but it just sums up. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God, as one's holy father. Packer writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And of course, one of the things that's a hindrance for us is you may have had the greatest earthly father in the world, you may have had the worst earthly father in the world, or as is likely a mixture, because all of us are what? We're a mixture of our strengths and our weaknesses, our good things and our flaws. But one of the things that hinders us from really understanding and seeing God as our Father and knowing what He's like is we filter it through pictures of our earthly Father. We've got to let the Scriptures be our lens and look at what the Scriptures say about God as our Father. So first of all, let's ask the question, what did it mean for Jesus? Because this was, first of all, Jesus' prayer. He prayed this prayer and then taught us to imitate and emulate Him. What did it mean for Jesus that He called God Father? As one commentator put it, he said, the most important thing, which is really the starting point for grasping who Jesus was and is, is that this word, Father, drew into one point the vocation of Israel and particularly the salvation of Israel. If you were one of the disciples and you were hearing this for the first time, it would allude back to the Old Testament, specifically Exodus chapter 4. Where the Lord gives his word to Moses and says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now listen to this. Israel is my first son. Who fulfills that? Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling the meaning, the purpose, the vocation, and the salvation of Israel, which is why when you read in the New Testament, we are the new Israel, the reimagined Israel, the reformed Israel. So now for Israel to call God, what was the message? Let my son go that he may serve me, that he may worship me. The picture there, and this is what Jesus is telling his disciples and thus telling us to hold on to, is the hope and promise of liberty being set free. He's telling his disciples that as God's children, we are God's liberty people. Which means, first of all, and again, I'm trying to be as practical as possible, one of the things to think about in our prayer life is not how eloquent we are, because nowhere does God kind of enjoin us and say, you have to be eloquent. In fact, how often are children eloquent, but how free 
You are God's liberty people. Do you have a freedom? Do you sense a freedom that you can pour out your heart to God in prayer? That you can be real and raw to God in prayer? Is there a sense of warmth and access in your prayer life? See, look with me at Galatians 4, and particularly verses 4 through 7, because there is a remarkable parallel here between a, these pa- a couple of the verses in these passages. Look with me at verse 4. In verse 4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come. So recognize this. God is speaking almost, you know, Paul is kind of saying historically, when the time was ripe, when the time was right, when it was time for God to ordain something, what did he ordain? God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to do something. To do, he sent him to do something very specific, to redeem those who were under the law. And then notice the very next words, so that. So that always indicates purpose. So historical action, God sent his son to do something, to redeem, to buy back, to purchase, that we would belong to him for a reason, for a purpose. And notice the purpose, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now that's interesting, because you might look at this, and if I were to say, you know, what's the purpose of Jesus being sent in the world? You might say, forgiveness, justification. And those things are true, and those things are important, and those things are actually means because if you're not forgiven, if you're not justified, if the righteousness of Jesus Christ is not imputed to you, you cannot receive what is God's real purpose, which is to adopt you into his family. It's to bring you to himself in love. God is a covenantal God, which means he's a relational God, which means he has chosen and he wants you. It's kind of like one of those things, like it or not, God likes you. And he likes you because of Jesus. And it's one of those things, I said this in the first service, and I think I'm yelling a little less in the second service. That's good. I always get mad at myself when I yell, but I can't help it. And part of it is because I'm preaching to myself. You know, there's a very big part of me that's kind of going, Jeff, when are you going to get it through your thick skull that God really does like you? That you're his son. Think of the implications of that, that he can't let go of you, that no matter what you're going through in life, he cares for you. You're his child. He protects you. He loves you. You're his. Listen to the word here, the sending that says, God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law, under bondage, under this cloud that says, keep striving, keep doing, keep working. He redeemed you. He bought you out of that bondage. You're God's liberty people. And why? So that he could adopt you as his sons. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 has this incredible, in this long list of Paul never taking a breath in this one long sentence that he has in Ephesians chapter 1. But in verse 5 it says, in love God predestined us, and I'm not going to speak up, don't get nervous, but he did predestine us. He predestined us, but here's what I want you to know. He predestined you for something, and it doesn't say for forgiveness or for justification or for sanctification. or anything. It says he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption, and then it says to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So he forgave us, and he declared us righteous so that he could live with us, that we could be his home, 
that he could be our father. See, do you understand that you are his? He's adopted you and brought you to himself. Edmund Clowney wrote in his book, Called to the Ministry, he says, salvation means that God writes his name on your head, your hand, your heart. He makes his name yours by making you his. That's why I love that Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. And when we pray our Father, you know what we're saying? We're saying, oh God, you are our God. You have adopted us through Jesus Christ. See, the original hearers, they would understand this because in the Greek and Roman world, what happened with adoption is, was actually a legal transaction whereby a wealthy person who had no children and was getting up in years could adopt a person, adopt an heir. And when the legal papers went through, in a second, their status changed. And that person was an heir. See, do you understand this reality? See, I think many of us, when we become Christians, we understand that something negative has been taken away. We understand that we've been forgiven, our guilt is removed, but how many of us really understand that the moment we become a Christian, there is a status change? You are no longer alienated, you are no longer alone, you are no longer without a family. No matter what your status here is on the earth, in God's sight, in God's church, in God's order of things, you belong to the family of God, single, married, young, old, male or female, I think that's the whole point of, in chapter 3, you were all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do we understand this? And this is where, look with me down at verses 6 and 7, because another sending takes place. Verse 6, it says, and it's almost the same language, it says, because you are sons, God sent, notice there's a say, here's the parallel. God sent his son, and now because he sons, that's what the sending of Jesus did. It brought us into the objective historical status of sons. But now, verse 6, because you have that status, God did another sending. God sent the spirit of his son, and notice where? Before it was he sent Jesus into the world, now where is he sending the spirit of his son? Into our hearts. Into a different realm altogether. He sent his son into the world to redeem us. Now he's sending the spirit of his sons into our hearts so that we can actually experience that sonship. That we can begin to experience what it means to belong to God, to be his. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He sent the son into the world to achieve for us the status and he sent the spirit into our hearts to experience the status that we have got received. Now, why is this important? Well, think about this. We say I am saved by grace, and I believe I'm a child of God, but do we always relate to him that way? Is that how we functionally relate to him? Well, think about it. Let's give some diagnostic tests to all of us. If we did relate to him that way, why are we so sensitive to criticism? Or why do we feel like such a failure or so worthless? Or why when we've done something wrong, we know we blew it, does it take such a long time for us to kind of feel like we can live a normal life again? Or why if we're called, 
You know, if we're convicted, we've done something wrong, we need to go to a person and repent and ask their forgiveness. Why does that feel like such psychological death to us? Or why, and I know we do this, I do this, why do we secretly compare ourselves with others? They got this, they didn't get this, that one looks better, that one this. Or why do we, a lot of times, why are we nurture and are filled with jealousy or resentment or bitterness or tension? Why are we filled with self-doubt? See, we know the love of God and the fact of our adoption is a fact that's promised, it says so in the scripture. But how do we experience the key is the Spirit coming along. And how does the Spirit come along? You can't divorce these passages. What the Spirit does is take the Word that bears witness to Christ. So the only way to do this is we have to meditate on who Jesus is and what He's done for us. The way I like to word it is you have to massage that truth into your being. Too often it stays too much on the surface. Or we think somehow the Spirit's going to work on us like by osmosis. Kind of along the lines of, okay, I'm a child. Zap me! You know, there's a reason the Scriptures say, think about Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, you mean there's something for us to do in our sanctification? We're to cooperate with God? Uh Uh-huh, nod your head this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The very next word is for, because God's doing something. He is at work in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. And you want to know what his good pleasure is? It's for you to enjoy your sonship. His good pleasure is that you would enjoy, you would gaze at his beauty, you would know deep down that you were a child of God. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century was a man by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor in England and then he became a preacher. He's known as the doctor. And in his commentary on the book of Romans, he reminds us of a story of how the Puritan Thomas Goodwin stated the matter and described this. Thomas Goodwin pictured a man walking along a road with his little boy. So you have the man, you have his little boy, and they're walking and they're holding hands, father and son, son and father. The little boy knows that the man is his father and that the father, his father loves him. But then he writes, suddenly, the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him up into his arms, embraces him, and begins to kiss him. The boy is no more his son when he is being embraced than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy, but oh, the difference in the enjoyment And Goodwin writes, this is what is being described here in these verses. When the time had fully come, when the time was right, God initiated sending his son to redeem those under the law that we might become, that we might be adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And this leads to our next point. I'll be very brief here because then I want us to go to this covenant meal and enjoy our sonship. What are the characteristics of being a son? And according to this text, the characteristic is intimacy and assurance. And how does the text show us this characteristics? It says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. See, look at this. First of all, the word crying. 
calling out that's there. It's the Greek word kratzon, which is a word profound of depth and passion and feeling. And we have to recognize that even though it goes very, very deep, it's referring to intimacy in prayer. It's not crying or screaming out in general. Okay, in other words, Paul's not saying, oh, here's what I'm teaching you about prayer. Be very, very emotional. No, that's not the teaching here. But the teaching here is be very, very intimate. Be very free and intimate, crying out, Abba, Father. There's a sense of access, a sense of freedom, a sense of intimacy. And that intimacy is born of what? It's born of assurance. Assurance not because you are living a great life, not because you're such a great person, not because your Christian walk is so great, but because of Jesus dying for your sins, dying to give you eternal life. This gives us a profound assurance. See, so many of us think of prayer, and again, we've got to get out of the performance treadmill. Have you ever, you know, kind of been praying? Let me just try to personalize it this way. You ever struggle in prayer because you think, gee, I just start to pray and then I get tired? And I begin, you know, head nod. You begin, anybody ever do that? Come on, we're all free in Christ. Let's, come on. Let's, let's have some reality here, a little vulnerability. Yes, yes, we've done that. We've all, I've done that. You've done that, okay? If you say you haven't, I don't believe you. We'll go, we'll go from there, okay? But let's be real here. PCA pastor Scott Sauls, I love how he puts it because it just gives me a picture. And see, we just need this if we're going to grow in prayer. And that's what this series is all about. Growing in prayer. Scott Saul says, do you ever feel guilty because you fell asleep while praying? And we just answered that question, right? He says, look at it this way. Picture it this way. He says, how would you feel or how did you feel or do you feel when a two-year-old child nods off in your lap? He says, how much more must your heavenly father feel about you when this happens? He says, do you feel better? Do you have assurance? He says, we should. Look at the word Abba. The word Abba is the language of dependent children. It is the language of a child having assurance of his father's love. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent into your heart that you would cry out, Abba, Father. And Tim Keller says, he says, a child doesn't doubt unless you teach the child to doubt that you love it. He said, the child just raises the hands in the crib. The child just assumes that he or she is just so important. The child just assumes you want to do just anything for it. The child cries out and expects that you're going to feed it, that you're going to change its diaper, that you're going to take care of it. The child doesn't sit there at six months old and go, uh, mother, father, if you don't mind, if you're free from the ball game, do you mind taking care of me a little bit? The child just cries out, feed me. And what do we do as parents? We take care of the child. This is the work of the Spirit. On the basis of the work of Christ, the Spirit sent into your heart to cry out, Abba, Father. And the only way for you to experience this is you've got to take that truth. You can't do it outside of truth, and you've got to learn to massage that truth into your being. We have to help each other massage that truth into our being. This is the point of prayer, of learning to grow in prayer. This is the point of the Lord's Prayer. And notice this is the, 
preface. This is the foundation. This is the starting point. It begins. It's going to move on. Hallowing His name. Seeking His kingdom. Asking for daily bread and forgiveness. And to live a holy life. But it begins knowing who you are in Christ. It begins remembering who you are in Christ. And is this a selfish way to pray? Absolutely not. This may appear to us to be self-focused, but it's not. It's not about being totally subjective. As one writer put it, the pattern of Christian spirituality is not the selfish pursuit of private spiritual advancement. Our task is growing up into the Our Father to dare to impersonate Jesus, our older brother, seeking daily bread and daily forgiveness as we do so, to wear his clothes, to walk in his shoes, to feast at his table, to weep with him in the garden, to share his suffering, and to know his victory. As our Savior Jesus Christ has commanded and taught us by his life and death, even more than by his words, we are bold, we are very bold, even some might think we are downright crazy to say, our Father. It's the foundation point, it's the beginning point, it's the start of growing into maturity. Our Father, we thank you so much that you don't leave us alone, that you have taught us to pray, that you've given us this prayer as a model and as a prayer to, as a framework for us. And we ask now that you would help us, and we ask now as we go and we take this meal to fellowship with you, to be strengthened by your grace. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen.